Realization, delivered in London, 29th October, 1896. I will read to you from one of the Upanishads. It is called the Kata Upanishad. Some of you, perhaps, have read the translation by Sir Edwin Arnold, called The Secret of Death. In our last lecture, we saw how the inquiry which started with the origin of the world and the creation of the universe failed to obtain a satisfactory answer from without and how it then turned inwards. This book, psychologically, takes up that suggestion, questioning into the internal nature of man. It was first asked, who created the external world and how it came into being. Now the question is, what is that in man which makes him live and move and what becomes of that when he dies? The first philosophers studied the material substance and tried to reach the ultimate through that. At the best, they found a personal governor of the universe, a human being immensely magnified, but yet, to all intents and purposes, a human being. But that could not be the whole truth. At best, it could be only partial truth. We see this universe as human beings, and our God is our human explanation of the universe. Suppose a cow were philosophical and religious. It would have a cow universe and a cow solution of the problem and it would not be possible that it should see our God. Suppose cats became philosophers. They would see a cat universe and have a cat solution of the problem of the universe and a cat ruling it. So we see from this that our explanation of the universe is not the whole of the solution. Neither does our conception cover the whole of the universe. It would be a great mistake to accept that tremendously selfish position which man is apt to take. Such a solution of the universal problem as we can get from the outside labours under this difficulty. That in the first place, the universe we see is our own particular universe, our own view of reality. That reality we cannot see through the senses. We cannot comprehend it. We only know the universe from the point of view of beings with five senses. Suppose we obtain another sense. The whole universe must change for us. Suppose we had a magnetic sense. It is quite possible that we might then find millions and millions of forces in existence which we do not know and for which we have no present sense or feeling. Our senses are limited, very limited indeed, and within these limitations exist what we call our universe and our God is the solution of that universe, but that cannot be the solution of the whole problem. But man cannot stop there. 
He is a thinking being and wants to find a solution which will comprehensively explain all the universes. He wants to see a world which is at once the world of men and of gods and of all possible beings and to find a solution which will explain all phenomena. We see we must find the universe which includes all universes. We must find something which by itself must be the material running through all these various planes of existence, whether we apprehend it through the senses or not. If we could possibly find something which we could know as the common property of the lower as well as of the higher worlds, then our problem would be solved. Even if by the sheer force of logic alone we could understand that there must be one basis of all existence, then our problem might approach to some sort of solution. But this solution certainly cannot be obtained only through the world we see and know, because it is only a partial view of the whole. Our only hope, then, lies in penetrating deeper. The early thinkers discovered that the farther they were from the centre, the more marked were the variations and differentiations, and that the nearer they approached the centre, the nearer they were to unity. The nearer we are to the centre of a circle, the nearer we are to the common ground in which all the radii meet, and the further we are from the centre, the more divergent is our radial line from the others. The external world is far away from the centre, and so there is no common ground in it where all the phenomena of existence can meet. At best, the external world is but one part of the whole of phenomena. There are other parts, the mental, the moral and the intellectual, the various planes of existence, and to take up only one and find a solution of the whole out of that one is simply impossible. We first, therefore, want to find somewhere a centre from which, as it were, all the other planes of existence start, and standing there, we should try to find a solution. That is the proposition. And where is that centre? It is within us. The ancient sages penetrated deeper and deeper, until they found that in the innermost core of the human soul is the centre of the whole universe. All the planes gravitate towards that one point. That is the common ground, and standing there alone can we find a common solution. So the question, who made this world, is not very philosophical, nor does its solution amount to anything. This the Kata Upanishad speaks of in very figurative language. There was, in ancient times, a very rich man who made a certain sacrifice which required that he should give away everything that he had. Now this man was not sincere. He wanted to get the fame and glory of having made the sacrifice, but he was only giving things which were of no further use to him. Old cows, 
barren, blind and lame. He had a boy called Nachiketas. This boy saw that his father was not doing what was right, that he was breaking his vow, but he did not know what to say to him. In India, father and mother are living gods to their children, and so the boy approached the father with the greatest respect, and humbly inquired of him, Father, to whom are you going to give me? For your sacrifice requires that everything should be given away. The father was very much vexed at this question and replied, What do you mean, boy? A father giving away his own son? The boy asked the question a second and a third time. And then the angry father answered, Thee I give unto death, Yama. And the story goes on to say that the boy went to Yama, the god of death. Yama was the first man who died. He went to heaven and became the governor of all the Petris. All the good people who die go and live with him for a long time. He is a very pure and holy person, chaste and good, as his name Yama implies. So the boy went to Yama's world. But even gods are sometimes not at home and three days this boy had to wait there. After the third day, Yama returned. O learned one, said Yama, you have been waiting here for three days without food, and you are a guest worthy of respect. Salutations to thee, O Brahmana, and welfare to me. I'm very sorry I was not at home, but for that I will make amends. Ask three boons, one for each day. And the boy asked, My first boon is that my father's anger against me may pass away, that he will be kind to me and recognize me when you allow me to depart. Yama granted this fully. The next boon was that he wanted to know about a certain sacrifice which took people to heaven. Now we have seen that the oldest idea which we got in the Samhita portion of the Vedas was only about heaven where they had bright bodies and lived with the fathers. Gradually other ideas came, but they were not satisfying. There was still need for something higher. Living in heaven would not be very different from life in this world. At best, it would be only a healthy rich man's life, with plenty of sense enjoyments and a sound body which knows no disease. It would be this material world, only a little more refined, and we have seen the difficulty that the external material world can never solve the problem. So no heaven can solve the problem. If this world cannot solve the problem, no multiplication of this world can do so, because we must always remember that matter is only an infinitesimal part of the phenomena of nature. The vast part of phenomena which we actually see is not matter. For instance, in every moment of our life, 
what a great part is played by thought and feeling compared with the material phenomena outside. How vast is this internal world with its tremendous activity. The sense phenomena are very small compared with it. The heaven solution commits this mistake. It insists that the whole of phenomena is only in touch, taste, sight, etc. So this idea of heaven didn't give full satisfaction to all. Yet Nachiketas asks, as the second boon, about some sacrifice through which people might attain to this heaven. There was an idea in the Vedas that these sacrifices pleased the gods and took human beings to heaven. In studying all religions, you will notice the fact the whatever is old becomes holy. For instance, our forefathers in India used to write on birch bark, but in time they learned how to make paper, yet the birch bark is still looked upon as very holy. When the utensils in which they used to cook in ancient times were improved upon, the old ones became holy, and nowhere is this idea more kept up than in India. Old methods, which must be nine or ten thousand years old, as of rubbing two sticks together to make fire, are still followed. At the time of sacrifice, no other method will do. So with the other branch of the Asiatic Aryans. Their modern descendants still like to obtain fire from lightning, showing that they used to get fire in this way. Even when they learnt other customs, they kept up the old ones, which then became holy. So with the Hebrews. They used to write on parchment. They now write on paper, but parchment is very holy. So with all nations. Every rite which you now consider holy was simply an old custom, and the Vedic sacrifices were of this nature. In course of time, as they found better methods of life, their ideas were much improved. Still these old forms remained, and from time to time they were practised and received a holy significance. Then a body of men made it their business to carry on these sacrifices. These were the priests who speculated on the sacrifices and the sacrifices became everything to them. The gods came to enjoy the fragrance of the sacrifices, and it was considered that everything in this world would be got by the power of sacrifices. If certain oblations were made, certain hymns chanted, certain peculiar forms of altars made, the gods would grant everything. So Nachiketas asks, by what form of sacrifice can a man go to heaven? The second boon was also readily granted by Yama, who promised that this sacrifice should henceforth be named after Nachiketas. Then the third boon comes, and with that the Upanishad proper begins. The boy said, There is this difficulty, when a man dies, 
Some say he is, others that he is not. Instructed by you, I desire to understand this. But Yama was frightened. He had been very glad to grant the two other boons. Now he said, The gods in ancient times were puzzled on this point. This subtle law is not easy to understand. Choose some other boon, O Nachiketas. Do not press me on this point. Release me. The boy was determined and said, What you have said is true, O Death, that even the gods had doubts on this point, and it is no easy matter to understand. But I cannot obtain another exponent like you, and there is no other boon equal to this. Death said, Ask for sons and grandsons who will live one hundred years, many cattle, elephants, gold and horses. Ask for empire on this earth, and live as many years as you like, or choose any other boon which you may think equal to these, wealth and long life. Or be thou a king, O Nachiketus, on the wide earth. I will make thee the enjoyer of all desires. Ask for all those desires which are difficult to obtain in the world, these heavenly maidens with chariots and music, which are not to be obtained by man, are yours. Let them serve you, O Nachiketas, but do not question me as to what comes after death. Nachiketas said, These are merely things of a day, O death. They wear away the energy of all the sense organs. Even the longest life is very short. These horses and chariots, dances and songs, may remain with thee. Man cannot be satisfied by wealth. Can we retain wealth when we behold thee? We shall live only so long as thou desirest. Only the boon which I have asked is chosen by me. Yama was pleased with this answer, and said, Perfection is one thing, and enjoyment another. These two having different ends, engage men differently. He who chooses perfection becomes pure. He who chooses enjoyment misses his true end. Both perfection and enjoyment present themselves to man. The wise man, having examined both, distinguishes one from the other. He chooses perfection as being superior to enjoyment, but the foolish man chooses enjoyment for the pleasure of his body. O Nachiketas, having thought upon the things which are only apparently desirable, thou hast wisely abandoned them. Death then proceeded to teach Nachiketas. We now get a very developed idea of renunciation and Vedic morality, that until one has conquered the desires for enjoyment, the truth will not shine in him. So long as these vain desires of our senses are clamouring and, as it were, dragging us outwards every moment, making us slaves to everything outside, to a little colour, a little taste, a little touch, Notwithstanding all our pretensions, 
How can the truth express itself in our hearts? Yama said, That which is beyond never rises before the mind of a thoughtless child, deluded by the folly of riches. This world exists, the other does not. Thinking thus, they come again and again under my power. To understand this truth is very difficult. Many, even hearing it continually, do not understand it. For the speaker must be wonderful, so must be the hearer. The teacher must be wonderful, so must be the taught. Neither is the mind to be disturbed by vain argument, for it is no more a question of argument, it is a question of fact. We have always heard that every religion insists on our having faith. We have been taught to believe blindly. Well, this idea of blind faith is objectionable, no doubt, but analysing it, we find that behind it is a very great truth. What it really means is what we read now. The mind is not to be ruffled by vain arguments, because argument will not help us to know God. It is a question of fact and not of argument. All argument and reasoning must be based upon certain perceptions. Without these, there cannot be any argument. Reasoning is the method of comparison between certain facts which we have already perceived. If these perceived facts are not there already, there cannot be any reasoning. If this is true of external phenomena, why should it not be so of the internal the chemist takes certain chemicals and certain results are produced. This is a fact. You see it, sense it, and make that the basis on which to build all your chemical arguments. So with the physicists, so with all other sciences. All knowledge must stand on perception of certain facts, and upon that we have to build our reasoning. But curiously enough, the vast majority of mankind think, especially at the present time, that no such perception is possible in religion, that religion can only be apprehended by vain arguments. Therefore, we are told not to disturb the mind by vain arguments. Religion is a question of fact, not of talk. We have to analyse our own souls and to find what is there. We have to understand it, and to realise what is understood. That is religion. No amount of talk will make religion. So the question whether there is a God or not, can never be proved by argument. For the arguments are as much on one side as on the other. But if there is a God, he is in our own hearts. Have you ever seen him? The question as to whether this world exists or not has not yet been decided, and the debate between the idealists and the realists is endless. Yet we know that the world exists, that it goes on. We only change the meaning of words. So with all the questions of life, 
we must come to facts. There are certain religious facts which, as in external science, have to be perceived and upon them religion will be built. Of course, the extreme claim that you must believe every dogma of a religion is degrading to the human mind. The man who asks you to believe everything degrades himself and if you believe, degrades you too. The sages of the world have only the right to tell us that they have analysed their minds and have found these facts and if we do the same, we shall also believe and not before. That is all that there is in religion. But you must always remember this, that as a matter of fact, 99.9% of those who attack religion have never analysed their minds, have never struggled to get at the facts. So their arguments do not have any weight against religion, any more than the words of a blind man who cries out, you are all fools who believe in the sun, would affect us. This is one great idea to learn and to hold on to, this idea of realisation, this turmoil and fight and difference in religions will cease only when we understand that religion is not in books and temples, it is an actual perception. Only the man who has actually perceived God and soul has religion. There is no real difference between the highest ecclesiastical giant who can talk by the volume and the lowest most ignorant materialist. We are all atheists, let us confess it. Mere intellectual assent does not make us religious. Take a Christian or a Mohammedan or a follower of any other religion in the world, any man who truly realised the truth of the Sermon on the Mount, would be perfect and become God immediately. Yet it is said that there are many millions of Christians in the world. What is meant is that mankind may at some time try to realise that sermon. Not one in twenty millions is a real Christian, so in India, there are said to be 300 millions of Vedantins. But if there were one in a thousand who had actually realised religion, this world would soon be greatly changed. We are all atheists, and yet we try to fight the man who admits it. We are all in the dark. Religion is to us a mere intellectual assent, a mere talk, a mere nothing. We often consider a man religious who can talk well, but this is not religion. Wonderful methods of joining words, rhetorical powers and explaining texts of the books in various ways, these are only for the enjoyment of the learned and not religion. Religion comes when that actual realisation in our own souls begins. That will be the dawn of religion, and then alone we shall be moral. Now, we are not much more moral than the animals. We are only held down by the whips of society. If society said today, 
I will not punish you if you steal. We should just make a rush for each other's property. It is the policeman that makes us moral. It is social opinion that makes us moral. And really, we are little better than animals. We understand how much this is so in the secret of our own hearts. So let us not be hypocrites. Let us confess that we are not religious and have no right to look down on others. We are all brothers and we shall be truly moral when we have realised religion. If you have seen a certain country and a man forces you to say that you have not seen it, Still in your heart of hearts you know you have. So when you see religion and God in a more intense sense than you see this external world, nothing will be able to shake your belief. Then you have real faith. That is what is meant by the words in your gospel. He who has faith even as a grain of mustard seed. Then you will know the truth because you have become the truth. This is the watchword of the Vedanta. Realise religion. No talking will do. But it is done with great difficulty. He has hidden himself inside the atom, this ancient one who resides in the inmost recess of every human heart. The sages realised him through the power of introspection and got beyond both joy and misery, beyond what we call virtue and vice beyond good and bad deeds, beyond being and non-being. He who has seen him has seen the reality. But what then about heaven? It was the idea of happiness minus unhappiness. That is to say, what we want is the joys of this life minus its sorrows. That is a very good idea, no doubt. It comes naturally but it is a mistake throughout, because there is no such thing as absolute good, nor any such thing as absolute evil. You have all heard of that rich man in Rome, who learnt one day that he had only about a million pounds of his property left. He said, What shall I do tomorrow? And forthwith committed suicide. A million pounds was poverty to him, what is joy and what is sorrow? It is a vanishing quantity, continually vanishing. When I was a child, I thought if I could be a cabman, it would be the very acme of happiness for me to drive about. I do not think so now. To what joy will you cling? This is the one point we must all try to understand and it is one of the last superstitions to leave us. Everyone's idea of pleasure is different. I have seen a man who is not happy unless he swallows a lump of opium every day. He may dream of a heaven where the land is made of opium. That would be a very bad heaven for me. Again and again in Arabian poetry, we read of heaven with beautiful gardens, through which rivers run. I lived much of my life in a country where there is too much water. Many villages are flooded and thousands of lives are sacrificed every year. So my heaven 
would not have gardens through which rivers flow. I would have a land where very little rain falls. Our pleasures are always changing. If a young man dreams of heaven, he dreams of a heaven where he will have a beautiful wife. When that same man becomes old, he does not want a wife. It is our necessities which make our heaven, and the heaven changes with the change of our necessities. If we had a heaven like that desired by those to whom sense enjoyment is the very end of existence, then we would not progress. That would be the most terrible curse we could pronounce on the soul. Is this all we can come to? A little weeping and dancing, and then to die like a dog? What a curse you pronounce on the head of humanity when you long for these things. That is what you do when you cry after the joys of this world, for you do not know what true joy is. What philosophy insists on is not to give up joys, but to know what joy really is. The Norwegian heaven is a tremendous fighting place where they all sit before Odin. They have a wild boar hunt and then they go to war and slash each other to pieces. But in some way or other, after a few hours of such fighting, the wounds are all healed up and they go into a hall where the boar has been roasted and have a carousal. And then the wild boar takes form again, ready to be hunted the next day. That is much the same thing as our heaven, not a whit worse, only our ideas may be a little more refined. We want to hunt wild boars and get to a place where all enjoyments will continue, just as the Norwegian imagines that the wild boar is hunted and eaten every day and recovers the next day. Now philosophy insists that there is a joy which is absolute, which never changes. That joy cannot be the joys and pleasures we have in this life, and yet Vedanta shows that everything that is joyful in this life is but a particle of that real joy, because that is the only joy there is. Every moment, really, we are enjoying the absolute bliss, though covered up, misunderstood and caricatured. Wherever there is any blessing, blissfulness or joy, even the joy of the thief in stealing, it is that absolute bliss coming out, only it has become obscured, muddled up as it were, with all sorts of extraneous conditions and misunderstood. But to understand that, we have to go through the negation and then the positive side will begin. We have to give up ignorance and all that is false, and then truth will begin to reveal itself to us. When we have grasped the truth, things which we gave up at first will take new shape and form, will appear to us in a new light, and become deified. They will have become sublimated, and then we shall understand them in their true light. But to understand them, we have first to get a glimpse of truth. We must give them up at first, and then we shall get them back again, 
deified. We have to give up all our miseries and sorrows, all our little joys. That which all the Vedas declare, which is proclaimed by all penances, seeking which men lead lives of continence, I will tell you in one word. It is Om. You will find this word Om praised very much in the Vedas, and it is held to be very sacred. Now Yama answers the question, what becomes of a man when the body dies? This wise one never dies, is never born. It arises from nothing, and nothing arises from it. Unborn, eternal, everlasting, this ancient one can never be destroyed with the destruction of the body. If the slayer thinks he can slay, or if the slain thinks he is slain, they both do not know the truth, for the self neither slays nor is slain. A most tremendous position. I should like to draw your attention to the adjective in the first line, which is wise. As we proceed, we shall find that the ideal of the Vedanta is that all wisdom and all purity are in the soul already, dimly expressed or better expressed. That is all the difference. The difference between man and man and all things in the whole creation is not in kind, but only in degree. The background, the reality of everyone is the same eternal, ever blessed, ever pure and ever perfect one. It is the Atman, the soul, in the saint and the sinner, in the happy and the miserable, in the beautiful and the ugly, in men and in animals, it is the same throughout, it is the shining one. The difference is caused by the power of expression. In some it is expressed more, in others less. But this difference of expression has no effect upon the Atman. If in their dress one man shows more of his body than another, it doesn't make any difference in their bodies. The difference is in their dress. We had better remember here that throughout the Vedanta philosophy there is no such thing as good and bad. They are not two different things. The same thing is good or bad and the difference is only in degree. The very thing I call pleasurable today, tomorrow, under better circumstances, I may call pain. The fire that warms us can also consume us. It is not the fault of the fire. Thus the soul being pure and perfect, the man who does evil is giving the lie unto himself. He does not know the nature of himself. Even in the murderer, the pure soul is there. It dies not. It was his mistake. He could not manifest it. He had covered it up. Nor in the man who thinks he is killed is the soul killed. It is eternal. It can never be killed, never destroyed. Infinitely smaller than the smallest, 
infinitely larger than the largest. This Lord of all is present in the depths of every human heart. The sinless, bereft of all misery, see him through the mercy of the Lord. The bodiless, yet dwelling in the body. The spaceless, yet seeming to occupy space. Infinite, omnipresent, knowing such to be the soul, the sages never are miserable. This Atman is not to be realised by the power of speech, nor by a vast intellect, nor by the study of the Vedas. This is a very bold utterance. As I told you before, the sages were very bold thinkers and never stopped at anything. You will remember that in India, these Vedas are regarded in a much higher light than even the Christians regard their Bible. Your idea of revelation is that a man was inspired by God, but in India, the idea is that things exist because they are in the Vedas. In and through the Vedas, the whole creation has come. All that is called knowledge is in the Vedas. Every word is sacred and eternal, eternal as the soul, without beginning and without end. The whole of the Creator's mind is in this book, as it were. That is the light in which the Vedas are held. Why is this thing moral? Because the Vedas say so. Why is that thing immoral? Because the Vedas say so. In spite of that, look at the boldness of these sages who proclaim that the truth is not to be found by much study of the Vedas. With whom the Lord is pleased, to that man he expresses himself. But then the objection may be advanced that this is something like partisanship. But Yama explains, those who are evildoers, whose minds are not peaceful, can never see the light. It is to those who are true in heart, pure in deed, whose senses are controlled, that this self manifests itself. Here is a beautiful figure. Picture the self to be the rider, and this body the chariot, the intellect to be the charioteer, mind the reins, and the senses the horses. He whose horses are well broken, and whose reins are strong and kept well in the hands of the charioteer, the intellect, reaches the goal, which is the state of him, the omnipresent. But the man whose horses, the senses, are not controlled, nor the reins, the mind well managed, goes to destruction. This Atman in all beings does not manifest himself to the eyes or the senses, but those whose minds have become purified and refined realize him. Beyond all sound, all sight, beyond form, absolute, beyond all taste and touch, infinite, without beginning and without end, even beyond nature, the unchangeable. He who realizes him frees himself from the jaws of death.
but it is very difficult. It is, as it were, walking on the edge of a razor. The way is long and perilous, but struggle on. Do not despair. Awake, arise, and stop not till the goal is reached. The one central idea throughout all the Upanishads is that of realisation. A great many questions will arise from time to time, and especially to the modern man. There will be the question of utility. There will be various other questions. But in all, we shall find that we are prompted by our past associations. It is association of ideas that has such a tremendous power over our minds. To those who from childhood have always heard of a personal God and the personality of the mind, these ideas will of course appear very stern and harsh. But if they listen to them and think them over, they will become part of their lives and will no longer frighten them. The great question that generally arises is the utility of the philosophy. To that, there can be only one answer. If on the utilitarian ground it is good for men to seek for pleasure, why should not those whose pleasure is in religious speculation seek for that? Because sense enjoyments please many, they seek for them, but there may be others whom they do not please, who want higher enjoyment. The dog's pleasure is only in eating and drinking. The dog cannot understand the pleasure of the scientist, who gives up everything, and perhaps dwells on the top of a mountain, to observe the position of certain stars. The dogs may smile at him, and think he is a madman, Perhaps this poor scientist never had money enough to marry even, and lives very simply. Maybe the dog laughs at him. But the scientist says, My dear dog, your pleasure is only in the senses which you enjoy, and you know nothing beyond. But for me, this is the most enjoyable life, and if you have the right to seek your pleasure in your own way, so have I in mine. The mistake is that we want to tie the whole world down to our own plane of thought and to make our mind the measure of the whole universe. To you, the old sense things are perhaps the greatest pleasure, but it is not necessary that my pleasure should be the same. And when you insist upon that, I differ from you. That is the difference between the worldly utilitarian and the religious man. The first man says, See how happy I am. I get money, but do not bother my head about religion. It is too unsearchable, and I am happy without it. So far so good. Good for all utilitarians. But this world is terrible. If a man gets happiness in any way, excepting by injuring his fellow beings, God speed him. 
But when this man comes to me and says, You too must do these things, you will be a fool if you do not. I say, You are wrong, because the very things which are pleasurable to you have not the slightest attraction for me. If I had to go after a few handfuls of gold, my life would not be worth living. I should die. That is the answer the religious man would make. The fact is that religion is possible only for those who have finished with these lower things. We must have our own experiences. We must have our full run. It is only when we have finished this run that the other world opens. The enjoyment of the senses sometimes assumes another phase which is dangerous and tempting. You will always hear this idea in very old times in every religion that a time will come when all the miseries of life will cease and only its joys and pleasures will remain and this earth will become a heaven. That I do not believe. This earth will always remain the same world. It is a most terrible thing to say, yet I do not see my way out of it. The misery in the world is like chronic rheumatism in the body. Drive it from one part and it goes to another. Drive it from there and you will feel it somewhere else. Whatever you do, it is still there. In olden times, people lived in forests and ate each other. In modern times, they do not eat each other's flesh, but they cheat one another. Whole countries and cities are ruined by cheating. That does not show much progress. I do not see that what you call progress in the world is other than the multiplication of desires. If one thing is obvious to me, it is this, that desires bring all misery. It is the state of the beggar, who is always begging for something, and unable to see anything without the wish to possess it, is always longing, longing for more. If the power to satisfy our desires is increased in arithmetical progression, the power of desire is increased in geometrical progression. The sum total of happiness and misery in this world is at least the same throughout. If a wave rises in the ocean, it makes a hollow somewhere. If happiness comes to one man, unhappiness comes to another, or perhaps to some animal. Men are increasing in numbers, and some animals are decreasing. We are killing them off and taking their land. We are taking all means of sustenance from them. How can we say then that happiness is increasing? The strong race eats up the weaker, but do you think that the strong race will be very happy? No, they will begin to kill each other. I do not see on practical grounds how this world can become a heaven. Facts are against it. On theoretical grounds also, I see it cannot be. Perfection is always infinite. We are this infinite already, and we are trying to manifest that infinity. 
you and I and all beings are trying to manifest it. So far it is all right. But from this fact, some German philosophers have started a peculiar theory that this manifestation will become higher and higher until we attain perfect manifestation, until we have become perfect beings. What is meant by perfect manifestation? Perfection means infinity, and manifestation means limit, and so it means that we shall become unlimited limiteds, which is self-contradictory. Such a theory may please children, but it is poisoning their minds with lies and is very bad for religion. But we know that this world is a degradation, that man is a degradation of God and that Adam fell. There is no religion today that does not teach that man is a degradation. We have been degraded down to the animal and are now going up to emerge out of this bondage. But we shall never be able entirely to manifest the infinite here. We shall struggle hard, but there will come a time when we shall find that it is impossible to be perfect here while we are bound by the senses, and then the march back to our original state of infinity will be sounded. This is renunciation. We shall have to get out of the difficulty by reversing the process by which we got in, and then morality and charity will begin. What is the watchword of all ethical codes? Not I, but thou. And this I is the outcome of the infinite behind, trying to manifest itself on the outside world. This little I is the result, and it will have to go back and join the infinite, its own nature. Every time you say, not I, my brother, but thou, you are trying to go back. And every time you say, I, and not thou, you take the false step of trying to manifest the infinite through the sense world. That brings struggles and evils into the world. But after a time, renunciation must come. Eternal renunciation. The little eye is dead and gone. Why care so much for this little life? All these vain desires of living and enjoying this life, here or in some other place, bring death. If we are developed from animals, the animals also may be degraded men. How do you know it is not so? You have seen that the proof of evolution is simply this. You find a series of bodies from the lowest to the highest, rising in a gradually ascending scale. But from that, how can you insist that it is always from the lower upwards and never from the higher downwards? The argument applies both ways, and if anything is true, I believe it is that the series is repeating itself in going up and down. How can you have evolution without involution? Our struggle for the higher life shows that we have been degraded from a high state. 
It must be so, only it may vary as to details. I always cling to the idea set forth, with one voice, by Christ, Buddha and the Vedanta, that we must all come to perfection in time, but only by giving up this imperfection. This world is nothing. It is at best only a hideous caricature, a shadow of the reality. We must go to the reality. Renunciation will take us to it. Renunciation is the very basis of our true life. Every moment of goodness and real life that we enjoy is when we do not think of ourselves. This little separate self must die. Then we shall find that we are in the real, and that reality is God, and he is our own true nature, and he is always in us and with us. Let us live in him and stand in him. It is the only joyful state of existence. Life on the plane of the spirit is the only life, and let us all try to attain to this realisation.